situation, I <laughs> bought overalls this week. <gasps> very fun. I'm very excited about it. I don't know what producer's going to think. Actually, I think he'll hate it. They're going to look so good. I'm going to be so cute. Let me tell you, I ran into a very chic mom in overalls in the Target bathroom the other day. Okay, great, great, great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and as long as I normally don't talk to anyone in the Target bathroom, but I had a situation where there was no toilet paper in my stall, and then she brought her kid in and set them into the stall, and I was like, "Wait!" It's like there's no toilet paper in there, and she was like, "You need toilet paper," and the kid was like, "No," and she was like, "They're gonna be okay," and I was like, "All right, cool. Just wanted to warn you because you're wearing overalls and you look very chic in them. <laughs> okay, were they shorts? Mine are no, shorts. No, they were. I mean." Full Farmer on. Fred overalls. Love it. Love they it. looked so cute. Okay. I like that you got about short ones. Those are really good, like, summertime. Intro to overalls. Summertime fun. <laughs> I, I wasn't ready for the wide leg cuffed ankle. Yeah. Um, but I got the shorts, and I think I'm going to be fine. I think you're going to be fine. You just have to, like, I think, practice the peeing situation. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Because I have. I oh, have, you have the rompers. Yeah, okay. You're practicing with rompers. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. I'm um, <laughs> I love there's like a little cartoon. <laughs> a girl's like, this romper's so cute. I love it. And then it's just in the bathroom and like completely naked with the romper just below <laughs> Yeah, and your spanks that you yeah. have to peel off. <laughs> Jesus. Thanks, Tara Blakely. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about overalls and fashion. No. We're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we're drinking the entire time and we may have started already. (laughs) And we are not (laughs) historians and we definitely started already. (laughs) All right. Well, Let's just get right on into it because, as you all know, you're busy. You know that because you're you. Yeah. <laughs> you, um, let's see, what are you doing? You're shortening today? your overalls. You have a pair oh. of long overalls, but you want to make them into short overalls, maybe too even warm. an overall squirt. Who knows what you're doing? You're getting crazy with a machine. A wrap around yeah. the flap. How can it be a squirt? Weird. <laughs> That's a romper, Katie. (laughs) Okay. So you're doing all that. You're busy. You don't want to prick your fingers because you don't have a thimble. So so you can't look at your phone and Google these women. Get a thimble. So we're going to describe what these ladies look like so you can have a picture in your head while we're telling their stories. Mm. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? Uh, I am doing Juana Inés de la Cruz, and she is a Hispanic woman born in New Spain, which is present-day Mexico. Today, like, you know how when you fill out a job application, you do, like, race, white, and then ethnicity, non-Hispanic. Yeah. That's what I would bubble in. Yeah. She would be bubbling in white Hispanic. Okay. So, um, she's born and raised in Mexico with Spanish ancestry. Okay. Um, very light skinned, uh, almost always depicted in her nun habit with this like oval on her chest that's painted with like a picture of an angel or God blessing her Mm. and just very, very beautiful. Like she is a lovely, lovely person. So that's what she looks like. Okay, cool. Picture <laughs> like a white Hispanic nun from Mexico. Okay, got it. 
Got it in my head. Perfect. <laughs> Who are um, you doing and what does she look like? So I'm doing Betty Shabazz. So Betty has kind of like an oval face with rounded features. She has these like incredible cheekbones and like very beautiful like full lips. She had large dark eyes which kind of like turned down just like a little bit at the edges. Like her eyes kind of remind me of like yours mm-hmm. like the Tigger eyes. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> me and John Harbaugh. You and John and Harbaugh Tigger. And, and Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. T-I double like, her. Yeah just like the like slightly downturn at the edges but they kind of just made her seem like she was like very like deep in thought all the time mm. um and this, angry yeah <laughs> <laughs> in the 60s she had her hair in a classic like doo-wop bob like she could have been part of the chiffons <laughs> and in her older years she just kind of kept it really simple short and curled um but of course modernized it as the years went on and yeah she just is wearing normal like clothes again like 50s to 90s like what my mom probably would have been wearing or like Mm. my grandmother you know what i'm saying like (laughs) just normal outfits the catalog she's in on the catalog yep exactly so that's what she looked like (laughs) awesome well can you tell me what i'm drinking because this is yes so bright and sunny and yellow and it (sighs) just seems so refreshing it's gonna be um so because she is Muslim, I wanted to, they don't drink alcohol. So I wanted to make kind of like a nice, and also like the story gets very dark. So I wanted to make just like a light drink. So I made a sangria. So this is Dr. Shabazz's sangria. It's a low alcohol summer sipper. (laughs) So it is white wine, peach vodka, pineapple juice, You squeeze a little bit of fresh grapefruit juice, lime juice, lemon juice, just like any kind of citrus you got. And you put all that into a pitcher and then you top the whole thing off with ginger beer. Mm. So cheers. Cheers. Oh, it's so good. Mm. I never thought to put ginger beer in a sangria and it's just so delicious. This is a very easy batch cocktail and a very easy sober Sally, like to just take some shit out and literally you just take out the wine and the vodka. Yeah. And you've got a lovely punch. It's great. It's so yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. And you can put some sherbet on top and serve it oh, at church. Delicious. Or at mosque, I guess. Sorry. Delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So what do you know about Betty Shabazz? I know based on what you just said (laughs) that she lived between the like 50s and the 90s that she is muslim and that she's a doctor Mm -hmm. and that's it (laughs) i don't know anything about her i don't even know who she is until this moment perfect so she is definitely like a lesser talked about woman and i think she's very important but it's hard to because her story is kind of told through other people's stories so like we're going to go into a lot of tangents about the people around her mm-hmm. with her story at the core. Um, but I just feel like, yeah, she's a great person and I'm excited to tell this story because I right. also so, did not know who she was. <laughs> right. I mean, the only thing I know is what you told me earlier and it's that she's married to Malcolm X. Exactly. But, so it's like, I kind of know where the story is going, yeah. but, but it's like, I, d- I've never heard her name. Yeah. It's like, me I know who Coretta Scott King is. Like exactly. I can pull that out of my head. I have no idea who this woman yeah. is. So, um, my sources were mainly actually Wikipedia. They had a lot more information than others. <laughs> I couldn't find like a lot on her. Wow. And then there was a really fantastic New York times article that was written after she died by Robert McFadden. Um, and then I got a lot of my, Malcolm X research from a biographics YouTube video because I really did not know 
much about Malcolm X because he is always kind of like, I feel like this figure that like you're kind of like scared of when like you're hearing about, like when you're learning about the civic, um, civil rights. rights Well, I think we were definitely um, in the environments that we grew up in. Mm -hmm. We're taught that, Malcolm X and and Black Power and the Black Panthers were seen as like a very negative way to attain rights. Mm -hmm. And I still sometimes have to choke that back and re-educate my brain or like re-circuit myself and say, no, I was kind of taught this, that this was wrong and it's not wrong. Right. So it took a lot of me because then it was like, because he is in like a big part of the story is the Nation of Islam, which is like designated as a hate group because they have like said and done some like terrible things right in, including killing Malcolm X right so it's like I just didn't know a lot about his story so I was really happy to learn a little bit more about him mm. and then of course Betty in um in this story have so. you seen the um Will Smith Malcolm X biopic no uh it came out when me and producer were in high school we watched it together wait are you talking about the Denzel Washington one no maybe Oh, yeah. I'm talking about Muhammad Ali. That was the Will Smith one. Yeah. But I also watched the Denzel yeah. Washington <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you know. No, but I remember watching that and being like, wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. His story is insane. Yeah. But we're not doing we're his not doing story. <laughs> we're doing her story. Okay. So Betty Dean Sanders was born on May 28th, 1934 in Pinehurst, Georgia to Ollie May Sanders and Shelman Sandlin. So some publications say that she was born in Detroit, and even she believed that for a long time, but um, records later show that she was actually born in Georgia. So that's like a funny thing. Well, um, Detroit's a much cooler place to yeah, be born. Exactly. No offense, Georgia. Well, and I'm she so like sorry. grew up there, so she was like, yeah, I'm from Detroit. And then they actually looked at her birth records, and they're like, you were born in Georgia. And she's like, what? We have no less than two patrons yep. from Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as even aside from like, that her early life began pretty controversial. Her mother was just a teenager when she was born and her father was 21. And I couldn't find a whole lot about this, but it seemed like the dad was out of the picture. And then she was raised in Detroit by her young mother, but there was a lot of turmoil in the household and Betty was often abused by her mother. Yeah. Um, but when she was 11, she was placed with foster parents, Lorenzo and Helen Malloy, and they really become like the people that she refers to as mom and dad, even though she was 11 when she was placed in them, which like, that's like pretty old. Oh, yeah. So Lorenzo was a prominent businessman and Helen was an outspoken activist. She was a founding member of the Housewives League of Detroit a group of African-American women who organized campaigns to support black-owned businesses, and they would boycott stores that refused to hire black employees. She was also a member of the National Council of Negro Women and the NAACP. They were both, you know, Lorenzo and Helen, were active members of their local Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church. But oddly enough, they never openly discussed racism with Betty. Never? Never. Hmm. Betty later said, race relations were not discussed, and it was hoped that by denying the existence of race problems, the problems would go away. Anyone who openly discussed race relations was quickly viewed as a troublemaker. So it's just really interesting because, like, her foster parents are actively working to dismantle the racism that they obviously know exists because they're working against it. And there are little race riots happening in Detroit 
all around Betty and no one is talking about it like any of it to her what she said was like pretty like psychologically disturbing she's like I know that stuff is going on like why won't you just answer my questions it's like being it's, it's like wild. being raised as a white kid where they're like racism does not happen anymore mm-hmm. and you're just like are you sure yes you're like and then a blank in and then nothing <laughs> the emancipation proclamation <laughs> happened <laughs> Montgomery bus boycotts took one day. Everybody (laughs) skips down the streets holding hands and we're all fine. Everything's perfect. Um, So, yeah. So all that's happening. But she soon graduated high school and she was on her way to her foster dad's alma mater, Tuskegee University in Alabama, historically black college. Wait, where? Alabama. Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) So... She describes, like, you know, they're going to the train station. Lorenzo and Helen drop her off. And her foster mother, I guess, like, mother at this Mm -hmm. point, she is crying. And she's trying to tell Betty something. But she can't get the words out. And she's kind of mumbling. And Betty gets on the train. She's like, what was she trying to say? And then it kind of hits her. She goes, oh, my gosh. She's trying to warn me about the racism of the South. But she literally couldn't even speak the words to me because she knows that I'm about to go into the fucking lion's den. Yo, prep your girl. Like she's going to literally Alabama like, to Montgomery. Not safe. No, it's not safe for her. Like, so when she got there, she was indeed unprepared for the horrible racism she would begin to experience. So she tried to stay on campus as much as possible to kind of protect herself. But when she had to go into the town of Montgomery, it was, like, really rough. And, like, she said it was just, like, the, like there was obviously blatant racism, but she was, like, it's also just, like, you couldn't get things done because you would go into a store and you would have to wait until every white person in the store had been helped before the staff would even come near you. If you received service at all, sometimes they wouldn't even tell you but until you'd been standing there for fucking hours, just wanted to check out with your eggs. Like, she was, like, it was just so atrocious and then when she would call her foster sorry when she would call her foster parents (laughs) she would call her foster parents to talk to them about it and they still refused to discuss the issue in a 1989 interview she summarized their attitude as if you're just quiet it will go away so even though she's extremely frustrated, she continued her education. She actually wanted to go for a degree in education, but she was like, like mm, I think I'll do nursing instead. Uh, and then some of her professors encouraged her to go to New York to go to nursing school at Brooklyn State College School of Nursing. So she goes there in 1953, and she was kind of hoping to get away from the blatant racism she had experienced in the South. But when she got to New York, she realized that the racism in the North still existed. It was just more like, and I love this quote, genteel prejudice. <laughs> it's like, that is it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Obviously like there's still blatant racism, but like, I, it's such an interesting like distinction though, between like, yeah, of course, like, no, there's not, there's not racism in the North. That's well, what's, a Southern thing. What's so interesting is that the South is racist or was at this point, and is and admits it <laughs> and the north is racist i know and won't admit it. <laughs> no i'm not are you kidding me <laughs> i don't see color <laughs> exactly <laughs> that type of bullshit so it's at montefiore hospital where she's performing her clinical training um 
And again, she started to notice, like, she's like, okay, black nurses are given worse assignments than white nurses. White patients sometimes were abusive, like (gasps) physically abusive to black nurses. And the hospital would do literally nothing about it. So all this is happening. (laughs) And she's in her second year of nursing school. And her life takes a turn. So she is invited to a dinner party at the Nation of Islam Temple in Harlem by one of her nursing friends. She was a devout Methodist, so she didn't know anything about Islam and she wasn't interested in joining. But she went and her friend was like, oh, like, you know, just come for like for the dinner and then stay for the lecture. Like, it's going to be really good. So she does. She was like, you know, the lecture was like, okay. She was like, you know, I don't really understand the philosophy of Islam. But she was like, the food was so fucking good, though. (laughs) She's like, I'll take the food. Fuck the five pillars. (laughs) I want the food. She was like, (sighs) I mean, the lecture was really boring, but the food was really good. Yeah, 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 so yeah. I hear that. <laughs> when her friend kind of approached her, she was like, so would you like to convert? She was like, oh, no, it's not for me. No, thank you. She was like, you know, but like, thank you for asking. But like, I'm a Methodist. Like, you know, my mom would kill me if I <laughs> became <laughs> Muslim. <laughs> Jesus, greater than yeah, Muhammad. Exactly. <laughs> type of attitude. So the nurse friend was like, look, just come back one more time. You have to, I promise you, you have to just meet my favorite minister. He's very disciplined. He's very good looking and all the sisters want him. So she was like, okay, but really she was going back for the food. And so when she got to the next meeting, she was just expecting to get another good meal. And then she caught a glimpse of Malcolm X. (laughs) Hottie, hottie. Very handsome man. (laughs) She said, then I looked over and saw this man on the extreme right aisle, sort of like galloping to the podium. He was tall. (laughs) He was thin. And the way he was galloping, that word again, it looked as though he was going someplace much more than the podium. He got to the podium and I sat up straight. I was impressed with him. Was he wearing his wire spectacles? Uh, Obviously, yes. (laughs) Um, So soon, like, so she kind of stayed after the meeting and met him and they started talking and they initially just had a really long conversation about her life, which I feel like that is what like really powerful people do is like when they first meet you. they make you feel like you're the most important person in the world. And that's charismatic. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of how Betty left it. You know, she talked about her childhood in Detroit, the racial hostility she had encountered in Alabama and her studies in New York. And so he's learning all about her. And then he starts to talk to her about the condition of African-Americans, the causes of racism. And she started to like really, understand racism in a way that like she hadn't before because she knew what it felt like to experience it but she didn't understand like the broader picture of it because again no one had fucking talked to her about it they didn't come up with the vocab word systemic racism yet (laughs) yeah so she said i really had a lot of pent-up anxiety about my experience in the south and malcolm reassured me that it was understandable how i felt so Mm. for her it was also more of a community thing of like Okay, like this I'm not is, alone. I'm not alone in this. So because she, I mean, it must be frustrating because yeah. when I'm thinking about it, it's like she's in Detroit, and you know her early life wasn't like the greatest. But then she ends up with some good foster parents, and then she gets into college, mm-hmm. and then she gets into college, yep. and then she, it's like 
it's hard, but it's not like the type of hard where like there's people being like, you can't come here. Right. She's like, I imagine that is like a hard feeling of like, yeah, you're right. Like, but I was able to go to school. Right. Like I couldn't buy eggs at the store, but, but like I, I can got go to school. College. Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, yeah, like what is the, what are the nuances I'm not understanding? Right. Exactly. So she started attending all of his lectures at <laughs> temple number seven in Harlem. <laughs> and the two became very close. They just always would stay after and just talk to each other. And like, I know you and I know that feeling of like, when you connect with someone like after like youth group or church or something, it is like, you feel like you're in a different world. You're like, Oh my gosh. Like this person is like fucking getting me, Yo, you know, fast friends, fast friends. Fast yeah. Friends. Um, so in 1956, she finally officially converted to Islam. She changed her last name to X, just like Malcolm did to represent the stolen history of African-Americans. Yeah. yeah. Like sign, sign an X. Yeah. Cause he write. was like, well, and like the whole thing is he like, so it's like, I, that there's like a scene in the movie where like, he's like, what's your last name? And he goes, my last name is little. And he's like, no, it's not. That's like your slave name. That's the name. That oh, the, it's like, like Washington white, Jefferson. Yeah. White. It's like, that's the name that white people gave you. That's not your name. Like you don't know who you are. Oh, like like you don't know who your people are. So it was like, yeah, you're right. So the X is representative of like, I'm not, I don't have the privilege of like knowing what my family name is. My family name was given to me by slave owners. Oh, interesting. Cause yeah. I also know that like this, the um slaves that had to fight in the civil war mm -hmm. you have to sign sign up for the army but they couldn't sign so they just told them to put an x yep. so it's like the, what is my that's my name right a yeah. literal letter x yeah exactly so um she converts she changes her name and her and malcolm just begin spending even more time together but since they were in a devout muslim setting they could never be alone together so their entire courtship there was like a lot of people around they're hard eye roll their literal dates were like hey the temple is going to the museum do you want to come like we're all going to the zoo together do you want to come betty <laughs> so there's like literally hundreds of people around all the time when they're trying to like get to know each other you know i hate courting i don't care who you are i think courting is ridiculous um even when i was like in middle school someone at my school approached this girl's dad and was like i would like to court your daughter yeah this still in happens. like middle school oh yeah and the so the dad was like okay but let me ask my daughter first because it like, kudos to him he was like that's her decision so he went to her and he's like um, so-and-so wants to court you. And she was like, fuck him. No. <laughs> and he was like, I'm sorry, but your request has been denied. <laughs> <laughs> he should have denied it right then just on the request. Oh my God. No, um, thank no, you. I know people that in our religious setting that courted one another. Yeah. Like had to have a chaperone in the room and didn't kiss oh, yeah. till they got married type shit. That's oh yeah. Insane. Yeah bananas sorry if you're super religious I'm sorry. Yeah. but you're also insane like <laughs> it is human interaction is fine if you don't think fucking king david from the old testament didn't have a thousand concubines <laughs> i don't know who the fuck you think you are get off your high horse and stop courting each other all right it was there we set go. up hot take hot take <laughs> set up by the patriarchy to hold women in slavery <laughs> you pieces of shit one star me go for it <laughs> Have one more sip of that sangria. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so in 
So, I mean, like, they described their courtship as, like, they never shared one, like, personal word. It was always in kind of, like, a teaching public context. But after two years of spending time together and, like, getting to know one another, Malcolm called her up on the phone and asked her to marry him. <laughs> he texted a proposal. It was like, you what? <laughs> you won't get married? Um, so they were married on January 14th, 1958 in Lansing, Michigan, the same day that she became a licensed nurse. <laughs> Fun fact. Wow. Um, what a but, big event. But it's actually kind of sad because she was not going to be using her nursing license for a long time because Malcolm wanted a traditional marriage in which he made the rules and Betty followed them. Hate it. And this went on for a really long time. And of course, Betty started to have children and they ended up having six daughters altogether. Atala, um, Kabila, uh, Ilyasa, Gamila, Lamuba, Malika and Malak. Um, so they have six daughters. So no she's sons. obvious, no sons. Uh. So obviously they are like, she's really busy with all the household stuff. But over time she was like, no, I'm going to speak up a little bit and have like more of a say in this relationship. So she said, Malcolm told me what he inspected. He expected in a wife. And then I started telling him what I expected in a husband And he was shocked at first. But over time, she said that he started kind of understanding her desire for independence. And he really did meet her. He was like, oh, I didn't, like, okay, I get this. So then they kind of came together. And she said they did become more of, like, an equal couple, which is good. Because it didn't seem to be that way in, like, the very beginning. And I mean, too, we have to, like, label, like, a time period. Like, it was expected for women, like, when you got married, you would give up your job. Mm -hmm. And you would be... You know, and this is beyond the religious stuff. You would be a wife and mother and then religion amplifies that. But then for such a progressive man, at least he was willing to be like, okay, see where you're coming from. I hear you. Let's discuss. Right. Exactly. Because I think one thing that obviously Malcolm X was always down for was a discussion. And I feel like he did kind of get it. And like, I want to paint that because like, I think that both of them were under an immense amount of religious and social pressure at this time um, to, but I think that, yeah, I just think that she had this very independent streak that she was like, Oh yeah, I can put that aside. And she was like, no, I can't. (laughs) I have a question. Was she wearing like a traditional hijab? No, no. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, not from, I, not that anything I saw, like sometimes she wore like head coverings, but I don't, but like she was typically not mosque or whatever, but not like normally. Yeah. Not normally. Um, so, of course, during this time, it's the early 60s, and Malcolm is really fucking busy. He was the lead spokesperson for the Nation of Islam and had actually increased their membership numbers from 500 to, like, 25,000, of course, bringing in famous figures such as Muhammad Ali. And he spent years spreading the world, the word of the Nation of Islam and promoting black nationalism. He, of course, became kind of famous for criticizing Dr. Martin Luther King and his movement of nonviolence. Um, but after a few years, and I am obviously glazing over a lot. It's not his but story. But it's not his story. It's her story. Um, but after a few years, he started to become a little disenchanted with the Nation of Islam especially in 1963 when he made a really upsetting discovery. So the leader of the nation of Islam at this time, the one who brought him like really into this movement was this guy named Elijah Muhammad. And he basically like, 
taught him like everything he knew. And he like looked at him as like, like a real like spiritual leader. And then in 1963, he found out that Elijah was not only having extramarital affairs, but he was having, I mean, multiple affairs with many women impregnating most of them, even those who were underage and then often refusing to pay them any child support. In total, it's believed that Elijah had about 13 children with women from the temple. But, of course, these are just the ones that are documented. And a lot of them were very young. That's terrible. Yeah. And... I mean, that's rape. Yeah. Malcolm was furious when he found out. He was like, this is just just blatant disrespect of the teachings of Islam. And I just can't believe you would do this. Like... Like it just, it really shook his world along with like just a couple, like a couple other things that were happening at this time. And so, well, when you realize somebody that you idolize, look up to and idolize is trash, it's like really world breaking. Yeah, it is. And so in 1964, he publicly announced his departure from the nation of Islam and he decided to just go. He's like, I need to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Okay. So this journey hodge right hodge mm -hmm. it changed his life when he got to mecca and he saw muslims of different races and ethnicities all worshiping together and they're all there for the same goal he felt for the first time in a long time that there was a path like a real path towards like the elimination of racism and that was the bonding element of like islam which i know sounds like really counterintuitive like you know how we solve racism religion (laughs) but you know it just gave him a perspective of like Oh my God, like that, like they're not just my enemy just because they're white. Like, right. Like, you know, like he was like, I can bond with someone who's white. Like if like we're on the same page, you know what I'm saying? Like it just like really blew his mind that he could be so connected with people that didn't, that weren't in like his specific world. Yeah. I've heard that when you take that pilgrimage to Mecca and like when you go like to, see the Kaaba mm-hmm. like you all have to wear the exact same robes so like you could be a beggar or you yeah. could be a king and you're right next to each other and nobody fucking knows mm-hmm. and I think that you know that's probably what he's seeing that it's like we're this identical group of people yeah exactly and he said that he no longer believed that all white people were devils, but that we should come together and live in peace. Because remember, no matter how often Islam is vilified as a religion, like that is the central message of like 90% of like, like the Quran has fabulous yeah, messages. Exactly. Yeah. So when he returned to the U S he like really started to denounce the nation of Islam saying that they were a corrupt group and like they were wrong. And he formed his own organization called Muslim mosque incorporated. And he changed his name to El Hajj, which is the, a title you get after you make the Hajj, um, El Hajj Malik El Shabazz. And he converted officially to Sunni Islam. Okay. Um, and this in turn changed Betty's last name from X to Shabazz, which, um, is of course how she's known now. And Betty embraced all of this. She embraced the new Malcolm, the new, like, Sunni Islam. She, I think, was probably kind of happy about not being (laughs) part of the the nation nation of Islam Islam anymore. (laughs) Um, But she was not happy about the new target that was placed on her husband's back. Mm. The nation of Islam was obviously not happy about Malcolm. They lost their spokesperson. Yeah, exactly. And a very public person is now criticizing them. It felt like a, like... 
he was not only abandoning them, but like flipping on them. Like and openly saying, don't be yeah. a part of this terrible organization. Exactly. Right, right, right. So of course they made plans to get rid of him. He received a lot of death threats, but continued traveling the country and the world. He went to 14 countries, sharing his newfound message of peace among nations. He met with 11 heads of state and directly asked the United Nations to, like, step in and do something about what was happening in the U.S. to black Americans. Mm -hmm. Because he didn't just, like, be like... Oh, I see. Like, you know, this is the answer. So, like, black Americans are fine. He's like, no. Like, we still need to, like, like black power is still a thing. He's like, right. but we just need to go at it from, like, a different angle. So, like, he's like, we like we need to still fucking do something yeah, about this. There were, I mean, the UN, there were a lot of fucking European countries that were pissed at us. Yeah, they should have like, been. Fucking stop it. Yeah, exactly. So... This and plenty of other things that Malcolm had been saying over the years made him a target of the U.S. government as well. Mm. So I imagine... Potentially dangerous man. <laughs> yeah. So I imagine Malcolm's driving a car, the Nation of Islam is tailing him in one car, and the FBI is tailing him in the other. Like, this was his life for the last year. Listen, I wish I made Horrible. enough of an impact <laughs> to have oh my that gosh. people tailing me. So it gives a fuck who I am. <laughs> so in 1965, things obviously started to really ramp up. Um, Malcolm's car was bombed, and shortly after, his family's home in Queens was firebombed. Yeah. While the family was asleep inside, they said they only knew because Kabila screamed and woke the entire family up, and they were able to get out and like. Thankfully, nobody was injured, but the house was burned to the ground. Mm. So that leaves Betty and Malcolm and their children just afraid for their lives constantly. And Malcolm just, he knew that someone was going to kill him. And unfortunately, he was right. So on February 21st, 1965, Betty Shabazz sat in the Audubon Ballroom in Manhattan with her four daughters sitting beside her. And I'm not even sure if she really knew it yet, but she was two months pregnant with twin girls. No! Twins. Oh, that's why there's six. Yeah. And she's sitting there, and she is understandably nervous as she watched her husband address a crowd of 400 people. Mm -hmm. And, of course, her fears were realized when three men charged the stage, shooting her husband of only seven years. They were only married for seven years. Ew, how'd they have that many kids in seven Who years? Who knows? <laughs> I know twin speeds up the process, but like, it's crazy. Um, they shot him 21 times. That is disgusting. She ran to the stage, tried to perform. Like she like, of course, like shielded the children. They went out. People like tackled them, I think, or something. I don't even know. Like, obviously it's one of those stories that like everybody has a different version of what happened. Yeah. And then apparently she went up and like tried to perform CPR on her husband and like, very Jackie just, Kennedy. Oh, yeah, exactly. Collecting, like, brain fragments. You know yeah. nothing's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. But, of course, he was dead. She was 28 years old, a widow, a survivor of multiple traumatic events, and now a single mother of six, two of which had not even been born yet. Stop with 28 years old. 28. Get She's out of my life. older than me. Katie, I cannot believe that. I, I'm picturing a 40-year-old woman, I know. and you're telling me she's 28 years old. She's a baby. Two kids on the way. Yeah, a, a literal child. Like, I have chills. I, I can't even remember to clean up my litter box. <laughs> and like, I can't remember to put my sock. I can't match my sock. <laughs> I'm 35. I'm 28. I just didn't. When I got to that point in the story, I was like, no. That 
is so it's egregious it's egregious it is it's absolutely egregious after the assassination she couldn't sleep for weeks how could you how could you your house has been firebombed and your husband's dead great and then she's worrying she's like how am i gonna provide for this family all by myself and she hasn't been working right because he was a she was and like nursing is not the kind of thing you can just pick up after seven years of like like a new certificate exactly professional development oh my gosh (sighs) it's not fun okay thankfully malcolm's autobiography that he had written brought in some royalties for her and then this is actually really sweet so alex haley who was the author of roots um he has the second time we've talked about that this (laughs) i know so he helped him like kind of write it and everything and helped him like format the book so he was like given some royalties as you know you know as like a thank you and that's like a ghostwriter no he i don't think he was the ghostwriter i think he just like helped him out oh, with like it like an editing like i'm gonna yeah like like i think of him like a, as like a producer okay and so he was receiving royalties as well but he immediately signed them over to betty oh, and was like forfeited on yeah he's like i don't need these royalties like that's you do um so just about a month about like just about a month after the assassination betty decided that she would carry on her husband's legacy by making her own pilgrimage to mecca Mm. she said i really don't know where i'd be today if i'd not gone to mecca to make hajj shortly after malcolm was assassinated this that is what helped me put me back on track Going to Mecca, making Hajj was very good for me because it made me think of all the people in the world who loved me and were just there for me, who prayed that I would get my life back together. I stopped focusing on the people who were trying to tear me and my family apart, which I think is so hard to do. Like, I feel like it is so easy to kind of, like, focus on the negativity and your enemies. And, like, she was just, like, I had to put that aside because I literally couldn't raise my daughters if I just kept focusing on that. Like, I had to move on. And, unfortunately, I had to move on quickly. But, thankfully, you know, making Hajj, like, helped her do that. So when she got back to the U.S. and to her family, she was ready to work on getting their their life back on track. So while her kids were still young, she made money by publishing her husband's speeches, selling the movie rights to his autobiography, and giving lectures on her husband's life and legacy. Then when her kids were in school, she started to become an active member of the school council, eventually becoming the president of the Westchester Daycare Council. Okay. And the more she got involved in education, the more she realized that that's what she wanted to get back to, the degree that she had left for nursing in the first place, education. In 1969, she attended Jersey State College and earned her B.A. in public health education. After that, she decided to go for her master's in early childhood education and eventually earned her doctorate in education administration from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, which I guess makes her an EDD, mm-hmm. which yeah. I think is amazing because that's what Natalie has. It is. Um, and a year later, Dr. Shabazz. And Vice President Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Vice President Jill Biden. Yeah, that's what I said. Okay. <laughs> All right. Is she the flutist? Yes. Is she actually the vice president? <laughs> you heard it here first. Every flutist is actually vice president. <laughs> Come on. And so 
A year later, Dr. Shabazz joined Medgar Evers College in Brooklyn, a part of the City University, becoming Director of Communications and Public Relations, a position she held for many years. She later became the Director of Institutional Advancement. She kind of worked on like raising money for scholarships and books. And she did all of this while having six kids at home. And like, who in like 1969, when she started her bachelor's degree, were all under 12 years old. That's terrible. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Getting a degree when you have children is not I just fun. don't understand. It's not fun. Especially so, since she didn't have like online university. I like, know. I could like fucking turn shit in online. Gross. But, unfortunately, so, <laughs> and traveling and she would also like travel the country giving lectures on her late husband trying hardest to like preserve his memory right and change the negative public perception that had engulfed him because she's also working really hard to be like he was not a bad guy like (laughs) he may have said some things that he definitely like later regretted but like his message was always clear like Mm. like black people need to like stand up and be like proud of themselves and who they are and like there is like a um oh gosh what is it not self-sustainability but like self-preservation i think and like she was like he preached that and he preached peace and like love and like you know the teachings of the crayon and like that is what i want people to remember him for yo 50 percent of this people in this country are fine with the things trump says i know (laughs) i know (laughs) and that's like 10 times above anything that malcolm outrageous um but unfortunately the tragedy of the shabazz or ex family did not end with malcolm so betty and malcolm's second daughter kabila was having a harder time than some of the other siblings she had gone to princeton university but felt at odds with white and black students on campus she just felt like she didn't like get along with anybody um so then she ran off to paris and she's like all right i'm gonna study at the sorbonne and she met this algerian man who she had a kid with in 1984 who she named malcolm after her late father um but the couple soon broke up so she moved back to the u.s living in between la and new york moving her and her son just from one bad neighborhood to another while trying to maintain various jobs in restaurants or telemarketing firms or ad agencies like Mm. She's just, like, a single mom just, like, trying to, like, make it work. But obviously, like, just struggling a lot herself. Um, And after a while, she turned to drinking. And she was soon having trouble taking care of Malcolm. So Malcolm spent a lot of time back and forth between, like, home and his grandmother's house and friends' houses. And, like, it just never was, like, extremely stable. Um, And while she's going through this, she is really struggling with her growing resentment of the Nation of Islam because so in between it's so like right after Elijah Muhammad there was Louis Farrakhan and he is currently the leader of the Nation of Islam and he was actually like one of the people who like came up with Malcolm X and like him and Malcolm were very close and then when Malcolm kind of defected he was and, like, like in charge yeah, he it boy. was like the new in boy and like so his the the Shabazz family always felt like he was the person behind Malcolm's assassination. Like he usurped his throne and like made sure he was gotten rid of. Yeah, exactly. So then in 1995, Kabila was arrested in Minneapolis for plotting to murder Louis Farrakhan. 
Now, I don't know if she actually did it or not, but they charged her with hiring a friend of hers to kill him. And we don't like she always maintained her innocence, but she eventually accepted a plea agreement. Mm -hmm. And under the terms of the plea, she did maintain her innocence, but she accepted responsibility for her actions. So she um, was required to undergo psychological counseling and treatment for drug and alcohol abuse for a two year period to avoid a prison sentence. So she moved to San Antonio for treatment and, you know, ended up getting a job at a local radio station. But during this time, she wasn't able to take care of Malcolm. So he was sent to live with his grandmother, Betty. Malcolm um, was 10 years old when all this was happening. So after the two years, he came back to live with his mother in Texas. And she had married again. Malcolm became quickly bonded with his new stepfather. But the marriage didn't last. And Malcolm and his mother began to fight because I think he felt just very abandoned again. Right. And... There was this one really, really bad fight. Kabila called the police. She was like, you need to come get my son. He needs to be put away in a mental hospital. He is unstable. I'm very afraid for like him and myself. And so he did have like a short stay in a mental hospital. And when he was released, um, they decided that he couldn't be with his mom. So they sent him back to New York to live with Betty. Mm. So... That all is like a very short way of just explaining what is about to happen next because it is very tragic and upsetting. And just to, yeah. So on June 1st, 1997, 12-year-old Malcolm, he's 12 years old. He is very distressed. He's upset. This isn't an excuse for what he did. But he decided to pour gasoline all over Betty's apartment and he lit it on fire while she was still inside. He said that he never intended for her to get hurt. But when she saw the flames, she went to find him and rescue him instead of running directly out of the building. And he was like, I just thought she would run out. Like, I didn't think that she would go after her grandson, go after and like and try and save me, which is like so horrible. Um. So Betty, when she was found, was alive, but just barely. She had third-degree burns over 80% of her body. (gasps) She was rushed to the hospital, and police later apprehended Malcolm, who had been caught wandering the streets in a daze, barefoot, and reeking of gasoline. Betty remained in intensive care for three weeks, but unfortunately died from her injuries on June 23, 1997. She was 61. Which, like, I can't even imagine three weeks of, of third-degree uh, burns all over your 80% of your body. Yeah. I mean, I did that <sighs> in, like, two spots on Caroline's body yeah. for, like, a couple weeks. Yeah. It's horrible. horrifying. Malcolm Shabazz was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic, and he was sentenced to 18 months in juvenile detention for manslaughter and arson. Um, but, unfortunately, he was just in and out of jail for the rest of his life. Uh, and he eventually died in a bar fight in Mexico when he was 28. Wow. I know. When Betty died, more than 2,000 mourners gathered together to honor Betty and her life with, of course, famous women such as Coretta Scott King and Maya Angelou at her side. Civil rights leader Jesse Jackson said she never stopped giving and she never became cynical. She leaves today the legacy of one who epitomized hope, 
and healing. Mm. In late 1997, the Community Healthcare Network renamed one of its Brooklyn um, clinics, the Dr. Betty Shabazz Health Center. Um, the Betty Shabazz International Charter School was founded in Chicago in 1998. And in 2005, Columbia University announced the opening of the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Education Center. The memorial is located in the Audubon Ballroom where he was assassinated. And in March 2012, New York City co-named Broadway at the corner of West 165th Street, the corner in front, in front of the Audubon Ballroom, Betty Shabazz Way. Mm. She was portrayed by Angela Bassett in the 1992 film Malcolm X and Mary J. Blige in the film Betty and Coretta. She continues to be an inspiration for many women today, and I will just leave you with a quote from Betty. I wish you power that equals your intelligence and your strength. I wish you success that equals your talent and your determination. And I wish you faith. And that's the story of Betty Shabazz. I love that. I mean, it's just the end is it's so, so tragic. It is. I didn't know that her end was more tragic than, um, you know, than yeah. Malcolm X himself. Um, it's pretty shocking to me that it was. You, um, I have chills for sure. Yeah. Uh, but it, what an amazing story of just like a woman who was both along for the ride and like steering the reins. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I feel like you can't deny that she was just so strong in herself that oh, yeah. like she had a really big influence on one of the most famously like strong men. Like yeah. Malcolm X is like known as just this like, st- like extremely strong stalwart like figure. Mm-hmm. And like, it kind of reminds me of that, like, dumb quote from, like, my big fat Greek wedding where she's like, you know, like, women are the neck. Like, they're mm. turning the head. And, like, I feel like that was what Betty was doing. Like, she was behind the scenes. Like, not only raising all these kids and, like, supporting him while he's away. Because I think that's another point that, like, we don't really know what Betty was doing during those times. Because Malcolm, like, wasn't really home. He is mm. – he has a lot of responsibility at that time. He's traveling. He's – doing a lot of stuff and like i know she had a lot of community support and everything but like that's really difficult it is i mean well you know what they say in front of every successful man is a successful woman yeah (laughs) (laughs) so yeah ready for more i'm ready let's do it okay Science and invention is of particular interest to women. I'm Lexi. I'm Haley. And I'm Alana. And we're covering the good, the bad, and the ugly of women's history. Tune in to Lady History every Thursday to hear about different ladies across history and cultures, from astronauts to zoologists. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LadyHistoryPod, and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, we are back. Back. Round two. Two more cocktails. Two more. No, one more. Sorry. Yeah, just one more. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I can't do it. Although, Um, on Patreon, we are going to be talking about the tallies of everybody's star signs. Oh, I'm so excited. I tallied it up. I cannot (laughs) wait. Um, So, if you want to hear about all of our patron star signs and prove any of my theories wrong, go come on and do it. Perfect. I wish I knew more about, like 
that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that I I know that I'm pretty right on Scorpio and that Casey's pretty right on Libra. Uh-huh, cuz we share the cusp. Well, we share the Okay, I'm We're sorry. not going to give them a taste. Yeah. <laughs> Dabble somewhere That's else. That's a sample. Um, <laughs> come back if you want the big box. <laughs> of this garbage. Of this garbage. <laughs> okay. Are you ready to know what you're drinking? I am. It's adorable. It really is. <laughs> this is called The Fire Within. Ooh. And it is basically a grapefruit um, margarita with Ooh. like some other elements. So it's great. An ounce of fluid ounce of grapefruit juice and then an ounce and a half of tequila and a drizzle of lime juice and salt on the rim and ice in it. But then like once you mix that all up, instead of doing the triple sec, you put in some of your favorite like clear soda, whether it's Ooh. like club soda or Sprite or ginger beer or whatever. And then afterwards you just put a little dab of grenadine on top so it sinks to the bottom Ugh. and you've got like this beautiful ombre from pink to red drink it looks amazing cheers cheers mm. Mm. it's so interesting mm. because it tastes like a margarita but the soda changes it so it much does i did not expect it to make that big of a difference mm. i also i really feel like the grapefruit makes a huge difference like as opposed just, to just lime yeah like you're just expecting all that lime and like mm. the grapefruit is like i don't know it's just different like you're right it feels it kind of it's like a like your marion anderson cocktail is kind of like a fake out it's like mm-hmm. you think you're drinking this cocktail but actually you're drinking something very different and like oh it feels yeah. so good it does <laughs> we got some re- let me tell you if you're having a party <laughs> this <is> good. make <laughs> make your guests a betty shabazz and a fire within <laughs> absolutely okay so i am doing juana Inés de la cruz and um she has been called the world's worst nun so <laughs> can you tell me what so her you- name is juana juana okay like Juan with a uh. I'm going to have to write that down <laughs> because I have no idea who this person is. Okay. You so know nothing. I've never heard of her before. Okay. I didn't know she was a nun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought you were doing someone totally different this week. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's amazing. And uh, this is going to sound really terrible. But like if you're from Mexico, you know who she is. She's on the 200 peso. Oh, my God. In Mexico, she's so important. She has so much valor. Everybody knows who this woman is and what she did and why she's important. And the rest of the world is like, whoa, whoa, what? (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, we just can't even believe it existed. Also, and this is um, both for and because of Vera's message last week. I do not understand the racial interplay of the... Um, Central and South American world. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm doing my best. (laughs) Yeah. There are just such nuanced things about that situation that like. Yeah. And like like, even I can. Well, yeah. And like, but even just like reading it on paper Mm -hmm. is so different than like actually being entrenched in it. Like, Oh, and understanding the nuance. Barrow's like literally like, no, not Barrow. Yeah. Barrow. Barrow's anthropologist. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, or was I mean, it Alicia? No, no, no. Alicia 
is in California. Vera okay. is in South per- South America, I believe. Wait, I thought Vera had the windmills in Spain. No, no, no. That's another person. Oh, my God. I don't know anybody. <laughs> we have a lot of listeners that have origins that aren't stupid white people. <laughs> I just, like, yeah, I definitely got, like, a couple people. Now I feel like a real dick. No, you're not okay. a dick. Yeah, no, no, no. Alicia, full force history professor in California. Okay. Vero, anthropologist. So I know Alicia was just like being like filmed oh, for yeah, like yeah, yeah. a history I thing. shared yeah. it on LinkedIn. Yeah, and I was get like, out really of here. <laughs> I was like, excuse me, Alicia. I'm sorry, can I get uh, just a whiff of your coattails? What? <laughs> what are you even doing with these women? <laughs> oh my God, our pirate doctor, her um, Nat Geo is being like published around the <gasps> world. Anyway, I don't know. We know a lot of really cool ladies. We are not cool ladies. Mm -mm. Okay. So in terms of sources, I absolutely listen to the podcast by Deviant Women because I love them and they're They're Australian. So great. So fun. Love their accents. I know. And then um, obviously biographies, biographies online. Oh, the guy with the British guy? mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I Biographics YouTube channel. And then the writings of Paz, which I'll talk a little bit about later because they're very old. Um, Ted Ed, YouTube videos, Wikipedia, but in general, there is so much scholarly work written about this woman. I was overwhelmed. Wow. So much. Okay. So let's just dive right in. Let's do it. In 1651, Juana Inés de la Cruz was born out of wedlock in a town outside of Mexico City when Mexico was still a Spanish territory known as New Spain. Her father was Pedro Manuel, a Spanish captain. Okay. And her mother was Isabel Ramirez, who was um, a Criolla woman, which means that you're of Spanish descent, but born in Mexico. Okay. But her father was literally Spanish. Okay. So she was also born. Juana was also born in Mexico. Okay. At this time, Mexico City's population was about 100,000, and only 20,000 of them were of this upper class, kind of like white person level. Right. Like, they were the higher notches of society. She was knocked down several pegs for being born in Mexico and being illegitimate. But there's about a 20-80 split where 80% are indigenous people or mixed. Okay. And 20% are either Spanish or Crayola. Okay. So among the elite class of people, she's still considered to be born pretty low. Her father is never around because he's a captain. But she grew up pretty well because her mother's dad or her maternal grandfather owned um hacienda which is like an estate Mm -hmm. in uh, new spain and that's where she grew up she spent her time hiding in the chapel of the estate to read her grandfather's books in the adjoining library which was forbidden for girls at the time now she is a prodigy she is not like a kid that got smart at 15 she knows everything at like as like a toddler she could read proust at five yes <laughs> she's fucking rory gilmore even more so <laughs> so because she can't go to school by the age of three she had taught herself how to read and write and starts learning three for, mm-hmm, starts learning foreign languages what first she learns latin 
Uh, and then at five, she starts trying to perform math. By eight, she had written a poem about the Eucharist, which is <laughs> communion if you're not Catholic. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Did not know that. <laughs> the Eucharist. Um, so that's yeah. like the holes in Jesus's hands. <laughs> nope. Nope. Uh, by uh, early adolescent, she thought her she taught herself to read and write in an Aztec language. Uh, and then she started to teach herself ancient Greek logic and rhetoric and then science and then all the things that girls were not allowed to learn. She was down for it. She soaks it in. She is very porous. I was going to say, she sounds like a sponge. She's like a sponge for knowledge. She, she takes everything she can. I feel like her brain is like a sponge and mine is like Swiss cheese. It's like similar in looks, but... Everything just falls through. Everything falls through my brain. She just absorbs. <laughs> or it puddles up and spills Yeah, over. exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> speaking of cheese, <laughs> you'd think we planned this. As a child. <laughs> I really didn't. I don't know where you're going, but I'm excited that there's cheese ahead. <laughs> so, this is what she said. And I quote, I refrain from eating cheese because <gasps> someone told me it would make you stupid. <laughs> and... My urge to learn was stronger than my urge to eat. I feel personally attacked by that. <laughs> That's why we're so dumb. Oh my God. <laughs> so fucking cheese, Katie. I eat so much. I had a string cheese for lunch. I had one in between the episodes. <laughs> I was like, I need to calm down. Well, I love that there's that meme that was basically written about you. It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like, do you ever just like, get up in the middle of the night and eat cheese, <laughs> shredded right. cheese, like a gargoyle out of the bag? I love <laughs> shredded cheese so much. It's so embarrassing. See, I, I'm more I, of a knife to the block kind of girl. I no. like to take a whole block to the no. <laughs> You to know the how couch. you bite it and you can see the uneven teeth in the uh, bite? I can't I do love that. it. I like the shredded, so I don't have I'm to like, see I'm like, yes, <laughs> teach me about how my braces didn't work. <laughs> braces it was the thing after that i'm sorry yeah it was the fact that i lost my retainer and was too ashamed <laughs> to tell my parents i couldn't remember the word retainer so <laughs> <laughs> okay well hopefully you can retain that word next time <laughs> you haven't been eating your cheese obviously Where? too <laughs> you're so smart so the cheese okay okay um <laughs> i can't believe that cheese came up <laughs> So she begged her mom to allow her to disguise herself as a boy to go to Mexico City. <laughs> okay, Lisa Simpson. Study. I know. I know. All about those sums. Um, Dividends. <laughs> her mom at first is like a no. You can't go do that. And then as a teenager, she was like, you know what? I'm a single mom. Like, Go, just like go to the city. I'm not going to let you dress up like a boy, but just go to Mexico City and live. You're like 15 years old. You'll be fine. Everything's going to be good. So she's in the big city. And I don't know how this happens, but her intelligence starts to attract some attention. People start to be like, whoa, this girl's a witch. (laughs) No, well, soon, but not yet. So the viceroy, which a viceroy was the representative of the king in the colony. So the, 
I'm sorry, what years are we talking again? The 1600s. Okay, 1600s. So Spain, the Spanish king is still in charge of Mexico, and this viceroy is like his representative. Okay. Thank you for <laughs> that date, because I was literally thinking this was in like the 20s for a hot minute. <laughs> no, this is like long <laughs> like ago. Viceroy. Viceroy. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. This okay. is long ago. She's 1600s. 16 years old in the 1600s, and the viceroy, she was born in like 1650. So when she's 16, you know, right in the middle. Of the 17th century. Um, he's like, well, his name's Antonio Sebastian de Taliendo. And he's like, she is so smart. Also, she's kind of hot, which like <laughs> doesn't do any harm. And he invites her to be a court as a lady in waiting for his wife. Um, and they're super wealthy and they're surrounded by super wealthy dudes that are all like swooning around this new girl <laughs> that is in court. She's attractive. She's smart, but she's also a bastard, mm. but she can kind of make up for it with her intelligence and her wit. The viceroy starts to think, I'm pretty sure she's faking how smart she is. There's <laughs> no way a girl. How do you fake being smart? Uh, who am I? Joan of Arc. Give me a fucking test. It, well, they do. Ah! <laughs> He calls. Who's the real viceroy? <laughs> you. He calls all the boys, all his boys, scientists, mathematicians, theologians. He brings them to court. You mean the boys? The boys. <laughs> his boys. Um, and he's like, listen, gives her no prep. 17 year old girl. Come in and answer these questions. This is a joke just for you. Is this the fucking praxis? <laughs> <laughs> just for me. <laughs> Just for me and the two other teachers. <laughs> I don't I don't know anything about teaching. And Allie's like, yeah, I'm taking the practice. They can just quiz me on like any historical event at any time. So hopefully it's about Mexico City in the 1600s. <laughs> and then you'll fucking this, ace it. Hopefully it's about this one woman. <laughs> I hope they bring up Juana. <laughs> So she's 17 and they're throwing questions at her left and right. And she's catching every mm, single mm, one. Mm, mm. Um, she's so good. And they're asking like questions that like logistical points and like that long-term scholars would have trouble answering. And she's just got it. They're like, Juana, if a tree fell in the forest, <laughs> nobody was around here. They said, what came first? <laughs> Chicken or the egg? And she said, depends on your religion. And they're like, what? <laughs> what? Is the glass and then the air horn blows. <laughs> 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 yes. Wanna for the win. I'm so sorry for the yelling that's happening in your ears. <laughs> We're so- three cocktails in tonight and not doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've only told you about two, but there was one before. Shout out to your friends that aren't doing okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'm so sorry. Apparently she smashes this question <laughs> sector. Um and he's like, okay, I guess she's actually smart. So <laughs> Her reputation continues to grow. And of course, she gets multiple requests for her hand in marriage. And she turns down every single one. Thank God. Because she's worried about bigger things. Juana um, had some problems. Oh, no. <laughs> she would, like, measure the length of her hair and then cut it and then, like, say, okay, I need to learn this new crazy theorem and if she didn't learn it by the time it grew back she would like rip hair from her head she was like punishing herself for not being smart enough okay and she's not eating cheese (laughs) it's a really 
crazy sad situation wow it just eat some cheese but it's so eat good some, eat some cheese and leave your hair on your head and yeah. you'll be fine oh my gosh um but she slowly realizes if i stay in this court and i continue to age and turn down men it's gonna look like really fucking bad and they're gonna <laughs> force me to marry one of them so you know what i'll do <laughs> I'm Smart just going to become a nun. Smart girl. I'm just going to become a nun. The world's worst nun. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. A, a, a nun for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Which is what they all were back I then. I love that. That she was like, oh, my God. I'm. <laughs> what a weird problem of like, I'm so beautiful and smart that I can't stop getting marriage proposals. So you know what? Fine. I'll be a nun. <laughs> really the worst problem. <laughs> Everybody's like, I hate you, Juan. <laughs> Um, but the thing is about monasteries and nunneries is that you got to find the one that's your flavor. Mm, mm-hmm. So if you look back in history, there are some like party house nunneries that are like wild as shit. She didn't <sighs> go to one of those. Oh, that's a shame. I know. But she first goes to this one called St. Joe's. But after three months, she realizes that they actually are super pious and care about God. And she's like, uh, no, not my scene. No. So she bounces. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that like, most people are like, I'm here for the dick. And she's like, I'm here for the anti-dick. She's like, I don't want any of that. Like, but I also don't want all this shit either. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want that at all. <laughs> she's like, I just want to live my life. So she finds a nunnery that's going to leave her alone and let her read books. A dream. It's all she wants. A dream. And this is what she says. She library wanted. school? Girl, get ready for the library. It's coming. You're a predict. You're a seer. I'm sorry. You're a seer. I literally didn't even. I don't even know her name right now. (laughs) Just kidding. It's Juana. Juana. I I wrote it down. It's just the Mexican female version of John. (laughs) (laughs) Juana. Juan. John. (laughs) Connected. Joanne. She's Joanne. She's Joanne. Okay. Got it. Um. Okay. So she finds this other nunnery, and this is what she says when she's looking. I just want. To have no fixed occupation, which might curtail my freedom to study. Okay, bitch, but everybody's got to work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, uh, not here for that. <laughs> not to five. <laughs> Just because you're smart doesn't mean you can defy Dolly Parton, okay? <laughs> Nobody can. I'm working nine to five, but it's the other hours. <laughs> what? No. 9 p.m. to 5 a.m.? What are you, a gargoyle? So oh. I know that's when you eat your cheese, but <laughs> I'm sorry. This episode is officially off the rails because of me and me alone. <laughs> no, we're both doing it. And okay. drinking salted beer. I have. <laughs> How great is it though? It tastes great. Do you it want some amazing. grenadine in it? Here it I is. Love it. Um, okay. So many scholars have studied her from this time period, including this guy named Paz. And He's one of the biggest ones, but he tries to analyze why she's joining the convent. And this is important. She's very young. She's very beautiful. And he says she's smart and she's trying to escape normal marriage, as we just said. Um, So he says she's asexual. Okay. Then there are other scholars that suggest that she's a lesbian, that she's attracted to women, and that... um, 
an asexual reading is actually homophobic for her. And then there are some people that say an attempt to classify her sexuality is misreading her altogether because she's a complicated woman and how dare you. Agreed. Agreed. Agreed with that. I yes. With the third one. Like, don't label. She just didn't want to be in the confines of marriage that existed in the 1600s in Mexico. Yeah. We can't talk about her sexuality. We don't know. We literally have no idea because I honestly think that she was just not concerned about it. I don't think that she was, I think she was just like, I just want to do what I want to fucking do. Like, (laughs) and like, here's the thing she does. Like she's a big writer. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about her publishing, she does write a lot of love poems, Mm. but that doesn't fucking mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Do you know how many poems I've re- we've read by asexual people? Who yeah. cares? Lo- being asexual or a lesbian or straight or cis or whatever doesn't mean that you can't express ideas on paper. Yep. Or understand them. Because I think that there's also a problem where like people are like, oh, you're as- asexual. You just like don't understand love. And they're like, like, you haven't found the um, right person. It's like, no, no fuck I you. Fucking I just get it. I, get like, it. I just don't want it. <laughs> I just don't want it. Yeah, exactly. So because she was cool as fuck. <laughs> At the convent, she got a two-level apartment with maid service. Excuse me. (laughs) Because nuns who come in with family money have more luxury than others in the convent. So she is kind of a little bit above because of her ethnic background. But she still has restrictions because it is a convent. She's not allowed to leave. She's not really allowed to speak to outsiders unless it's through a veil, which is kind of like a confession booth where Mm -hmm. like you can't really see each other. Like a perda. Yeah. But she did not need to be out in the world because she wanted the life of studying. And because she thrived on it, she ended up deviling in a library. <laughs> Katie, I'm not kidding. I know that was intense. I'm sorry. I have beer in my ear. Beer and salt in my ear. Deviling? Deviling in library sciences. No, what do you mean deviling? Do you mean delving? That's what I meant. this is how drunk we are oh my god okay deviling (laughs) that's what i wrote though deviling yeah that's when you get the book and you mix it with like some mayonnaise and some (laughs) paprika Uh, you devil it only old bay you devil it you don't don't paprika devil that book where are you from i'm so that was unbelievable podcast anymore <laughs> not a soul okay delved into the book delved delved into her library career but here's what happened she gets ends up having this library uh that's four to five thousand books in her little nun apartment and a little uh nun apartment at this time so she's a hoarder a hoarder of books okay uh so much so that it is the largest library in the americas at the time is what she has and um she had science and astrological instruments in there and musical instruments and like it's just like look at all my shit it's like <laughs> <laughs> the beast is like blindfolding bell and like bringing her in and she's like, <gasps> that so uh there must be something there that wasn't there before it's books <laughs> It's the birds that landed on his hands. So she spent time writing letters, essays, poems, scholarly writings, music, plays. She was the convent's um, accountant. She was their archivist. She just, like, loved doing that shit. But then she starts 
hosting logical gatherings in her nun's quarters. She's having a salon <laughs> in, her, in her nun's quarters with all her books and astrological shit. Um, and the other nuns start to get annoyed. They're like, you're focusing way too much on knowledge and not enough on God. And eventually like, God is knowledge, bitch. <laughs> yeah, God is love. So, um, mission. One nun finally sells her out, which again, you're, you're telling the story ahead. Look, we're going to get there. It's so good. I can't believe you can predict it. Okay. Cause this is a movie. It, this it, is should, an, be. Uh, it should be it a should movie. Be I'm, I'm literally so enraptured by this story. I've taken zero notes that, and then that's it's half of my story. job. Um, <laughs> one nun sells her out, uh, to the higher ups and she's like, she's studying too much. And you know what happens to snitches? They're witches. <laughs> <laughs> New mug. And she had her books banned for three months. She wasn't allowed to use her books. So she's like defending herself in this. And she says, well, actually, theology is the highest form of learning. And how can you master theology if you don't understand the things that God has made? There we go. I mean, can't argue with that. <laughs> okay. Is she right? Yeah. So she turns her, I don't know. <laughs> so what she does is instead she's like, okay, I can't have my books for three months. Fine. Decent sentence. I'm going to focus on the natural world. And so she just like goes into the kitchen and like watches people prepare food. And it's like, what's the difference between water and oil? <laughs> Look at this condensation. This is so, she's being a scientist. This is so interesting. Why does salt clump when it's wet? She just keeps asking these questions and like writing about them, which is like, I mean, there's literal cookbooks about her online. <laughs> it's very crazy how much shit has been written about her. So she slowly develops relationships with all of these scholars and she's keeping her relationship with the viceroy and his wife. And that gives her a lot of power in the nunnery to do whatever the fuck she wants. And it's creating jealousy between her and the other nuns because I don't know why, like they just can't handle her being cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on, you're all yeah, there for the same like, reason. They're not on her level. Yeah. They're not on her level. But because of these relationships, she with the higher up people, she could actually send her works out to be published and a shit ton of stuff gets published in Mexico and in Spain because the convent's official and unofficial poet is she's like getting commissioned for work, for religious events, for secular gatherings. She's writing poems and love poems and wedding services. And to talk about some of her work, one of her poems is called First Dream, which is super famous, and it's like 970-some lines, and it is a Okay, I'm sorry, masterpiece. is this a poem or is that a novella? An epilogue. What? Excuse me? It's, it's absurd, and it's literally about a soul leaving a body and, like, looking down at the world and, like, seeing itself. It's very interesting, but she's also writing plays that are being performed dramas and comedies which people saw as very inappropriate for a nun because comedies were seen as scandalous for women as it was how could she dabble in satire that was way too crude especially because her sense of humor tended to question notions of the interplay between men and women she's talking about gender normative roles in the 1600s in comedies and people are like, a nun wrote this? I'm very uncomfortable about it. 
I feel like none should always be in like quotation marks. Uh, the world's like, worst none. none. The world's yeah, worst exactly. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. And then another one of her plays was about Greek mythology. It was really pissed off the religious people. I'm but sure. She's just like, I just like that's heathenism. I just wanted to talk about the Greeks. Um, and then she starts writing music, but in like this weird way because apparently with a synth. I don't understand what she's writing with music, but apparently there's a Pythagorean tuning. Well, the, there is Pythagorean <laughs> theorem, but there's Pythagorean tuning where you use math and science to help write the music. Mm-hmm. Don't like understand. Don't like it. Don't. I feel like music's art, but I don't know what's happening. <laughs> anyway. I don't so, understand it and I won't respond to it. There's so many scholarly works about each one of her works that it was impossible to narrow it down. I was like, I don't. So many people have just read her shit and been like, that's the most impressive shit from the 1600s I've ever read. Probably the most impressive shit, like, ever. Like, what? People have no... I mean, people are like... This is, is... It's insane that we've never heard her name. Now, let's be clear. People probably think that she's an alien. <laughs> right, because... Because they're like, that's She's not impossible. American or British? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I just wouldn't be surprised if there was, like, an... Mm, Quantum is probably not of this world. Right. She's from um, somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is happening on the precipice of the Enlightenment. So, like, right before the 1700s. And she's influenced by religious history and secular history. And she's elegant. And she's funny. And she responds to other poets. But her lack of religious focus is a big old fucking problem. Mm. And people were like, hey, it's okay if you gave up the life of a woman and marriage to a man to dedicate your life to God, this masculine figure. But if you gave it up for yourself, that's not okay. Yeah. You can't do that. So her confessor, which is the priest that you confess to, was a Jesuit man named Antonio. And when she first joined the nunnery, he was super excited because she's so smart and so awesome. But over the 20 years of her being at this convent, he starts to work against her. And your confessor knows literally everything about you. And it's literally illegal for them to divulge any of it. No, I don't like this at all. So he decides to betray her in the 1680s and publishes a private letter that she sent to someone for everyone to see. There's a lot of debate about who has the right to teach and study religion at this time and who can interpret God's word. So what happened is there's this sermon that went out like 40 years before this and Juana disagrees with the sermon and what was said. So she's up late at night one night talking to a friend about it, a male scholar, and he's like, wow, that is super intuitive. Write it down for me and send it to me in a letter. Most likely a setup. Fucking trap. It's a trap setup. So what happens is she sends it, and then it obviously goes into the hands of the higher up people, and they publish it. And it is a woman literally questioning God. But I don't think her questions are absurd. So she is saying things like, I think God's biggest gift to us is not giving us everything because then we wouldn't have free will. Yeah. Because otherwise we'd be slaves. 
I have and Swiss cheese brain. And I'm like, yeah, that makes yeah, sense. That makes yeah. so much sense. And then okay. she like, she like all of her points seem very like Christianity today, but Christianity 1600s was like questioning the men in charge of the church and questioning God is like, yeah, you're terrible. Go they, to hell. Yeah. They were like plot twist. Like this wasn't supposed to be happening. Right. So a lot of people think that she was tricked into writing this down and she's very embarrassed at first. And instead of caving in on herself, she decides to write a reply. And this reply is considered one of the most important proto-feminist texts up there with Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Women. It is feminism before feminism was a thing. She defends women's rights to education, to read, to interpret scripture, to be educated, to publish, to have a voice. In particular, she says older women should instruct younger women because she said specifically this could prevent potentially dangerous situations between male teachers and young women. In the 1600s. She's calling people fucking out. She drew on examples from Esther and the Queen of Sheba and women from history and women from her own time. And the letters is self-defense saying, yes, I wrote that other letter that you saw, but I had a right to write it. Yeah. It was my opinion. I have a right to my own opinion. And she's asking, obviously, is a woman having an opinion a crime? Because if we blindly follow men into this faith, then do you actually have faith? And you don't. And then she said, one can perfectly well philosophize while cooking supper. This is a great quote. I like I can do I can be a woman and fucking think. Right. Asshole. It's like I can be a woman and a philosopher and a fucking chef. Like I can do I can do multiple things at once cuz I think right. that's the problem with like the male perception of the world is like you can be one thing. That's it. And like yet they believe in the holy trinity. Yeah. <laughs> but like because it's like women have always known that you can do more. But because they've bared the brunt of the responsibility at home. You right. know what I'm saying? So, like, there was never a question in women's minds that they could do more than one thing. But for men, it was always, like, they were just so loud about the one thing that they could fucking do. And it's like <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, it's an absurd situation. And over time, her criticism of misogyny and the hypocrisy of men is getting to too many ears. Um. So she stops writing altogether, and we don't know why. There's a lot of theories. The first theory that's put out by men is that she gave it all up and admitted she was wrong. <laughs> she did publish a thing called I, the Worst of All Women, um, which is a public apology. And um, she sells her thousands of books and gives the money to the poor in respect. That is a spun story. Uh, she was forced to give up her library is the opinion that I choose and was forced to write this mm -hmm. published article. I, the worst of all women mm -hmm. and, um, then has to live her remaining years, not being allowed to speak her opinion because she gained too many listening ears 
Some even say her library was burned, not just confiscated, but burned in front of her. So many who believe the former cite that she gave this penance. And I'm just saying, you don't understand how strong men are, how much they can take away because they can. In her remaining years, she did use her time to give to charity and to the poor. But the plague sweeps the 1600s. And in her region, she was going around being a nurse. Mm. And because of that, she succumbed to the disease herself and died at the age of 46. 46. 46. Her outspoken opinion granted her titles during her lifetime, such as the 10th Muse and the Phoenix of America. She was a flame that rose from religious authoritarianism. Of the over 100 published works that she had, only a few survive. And according to many, they only survive because of the Viceroy's wife. After hundreds of years of fading from historical knowledge, Octavio Paz, who... I do not agree with everything he wrote about her, but I'm glad he wrote about her because he brought her from the ashes. He brought her back and front and center and said she's a proto-feminist and she brought forth discourse on colonialism, educational rights, women's rights, and feminist advocacy. In 1993, Sor Juana Ines Service um, for Abused Women was established to help women survivors of domestic violence. The convent where Juana lived for 27 years of her life today is the University of Cloister of Sor Juana. And in 1995, um, she had her name inscribed in gold in the Mexican Congress. Ah. And she's now pictured on the 200 peso bill and the 1,000 peso coin. The town where she grew up was renamed in her honor. And I think all of this is incredible for Mexico. They were like, hey, look at this famous religiously controversial feminist. Let's put her on everything. Here we go. We can't even get Harriet Tubman on the fucking $20 bill. (laughs) And they just put her everywhere, which is incredible. Also, we know so little about Harriet Tubman, actually. Yeah, exactly. Araminta, you mean? Yeah, unbelievable. (laughs) So the amount of scholarly work about her life, her writing, her impact is just incredible. I was overwhelmed. Margaret Atwood has written poems about her. There are cookbooks focusing on her writing. I found this article on the a comparison between how she and Frida Kahlo, both being from Mexico, dressed and made themselves look androgynous to blur the lines of sexism. Like, if you want to read something about this woman, there is so There's much. Plenty. Go find her. Yeah. So... I just, she's a gem, and I'm so glad that we got to cover her because she's one of those rare gems that made the world a better place. And that's the story of Juana. (laughs) I'm, like, really overwhelmed. Isn't that incredible? That was a really awesome story. I can't believe how cool she is. I've just, I've never heard of her. I didn't, like, I, yeah, I just don't. I'm really overwhelmed. I didn't even know she existed. And then to learn that she's like owned the biggest library in North and South America and was a proto feminist. And like, it just makes me feel like, obviously it makes me feel like it should, that I don't yeah. know enough about women's yeah, history. No, absolutely. That's how we should feel. All right. Well, I think we need to talk about these two women together in a little segment. We like to call them just the two of us. Okay. 
So first off, I want to point out that they were both born in unfavorable circumstances, not just of their time, right. but I feel like that circumstance is fucking timeless of like unwed parents, like young parents. And like, I feel like the idea for both of these women is that they wouldn't have, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have been anything. Yeah. And do you know what's really distracting about it is like, mm-hmm. I hate the word bastard, but I hate yeah. the word illegitimate even more. Yeah. That word digs at me. But like, how, you're not an illegitimate person because of yeah. a decision that your parents made. That's disgusting. It's also like to even give legitimacy to someone's personhood <laughs> in any way, shape or form is so fucked it's horrible and then it's like to have these preconceived notions about a person just because of what their parents did or did not do is uh, just unbelievable but i think that that's one of the beauties of because like the fact of the matter is we do live in a society that does put limitations on people because of what their parents were or did or whatever and i just feel like they shouldn't have been anything and they were just so much more than something mm-hmm. and these are women that are famous in circles that know about them mm. but like you and i aren't in those circles no we're not like, i don't i found out this week i don't know shit about malcolm x i didn't go into his story too much this week obviously because it was about betty but like i am sure that people in that know how or like oh yeah bet like betty shabazz absolutely and like right. obviously people in like mexico are like yeah juana like she's on the fucking money like i just think it's such a leap of like born out of nothing and then turned into someone who is so important to so many people and it just i think it also like paints a really a really big picture of like what it means to be important in society as a woman that it will never be plastered plastered for everyone in the world to see. It'll be just the people who knew you. And it's like, that's your cup of tea. Accept it. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. and unless you're going to be like the first prime minister, you know, Margaret Thatcher, like nobody knows who you are. Yeah. But I also thought it was interesting how they both, entered religious institutions for different reasons yeah like a betty is like listen i was born and raised methodist i have this religious background but i go to this thing they have good food (laughs) juana's like don't let me eat your cheese (laughs) like food was a really weird part of both these stories (laughs) right but she's like okay there's this cute boy he's like really charismatic i want to like be part of the nation of islam and then, or like of the Islamic faith. And then like Awana <laughs> is doing it for totally non-religious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> She's just like, I'm going to do it so I can escape, as far as we know, escape the tyranny of what's happening in her life. And I think that that's a very decent read of it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I think it's the most, I think it's the read that gives her the most power. The most agency in her life. Yeah, exactly. Because we don't know anything else. We about don't really her. know anything about her, but like. From what I understand about everything else that she was doing, it's like that tracks. And I feel like it tracks because I do feel like you have Juana who is living the most extreme version of outside the realms of womanhood oh, yeah. while also being in an oddly like this is what women should Female be. Professor, you know, what I'm, like nuns of like that is the ideal, obviously, right. you know, that women should never have sex and be totally chased, mm-hmm. you know. Which is weird because then it's like, okay, but do you want 
Right. What exactly? What do you, what want? Do you fucking want from me? Um. But then you have Betty who like. What do you want? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then you like so you have these two different kind of like very traditional forms of womanhood of like a nun and a mother, mm. both in very religious contexts. But then they both break out of those molds because they were never really supposed to be there to begin with. Like I feel like both of them use them as like. Yeah, I do want to be this, but that's not my only, that's not my only identity. Right. And then, I mean, not only is it not their only identity, but they took care to publish their identity. Yeah. Both of them were like, I'm going to put out these works. And like, in terms of Juana, it was things that she wrote. And, you know, in terms of Betty, it's like, these are speeches and shit that my husband did, but also I'm going to become a doctor. And there's just so much going on that they're they're putting out so much literature in the world and people take that for granted how many things you can google is because we had people writing shit for centuries yeah absolutely and i i feel like they just were speaking for themselves and for like a greater like purpose because I think they both very strongly felt that, like, they had a right to their opinion. Mm. And I think that Betty expressed that in the world. But she also expressed it with Malcolm. To her husband. She literally said, like, I am an equal part in this relationship. And you have to treat me like that. Right. And the thing is, is, like, what was she going to do if he said no? She I don't know. Fought. She would have fought back. I feel like she would have, you know? And, like... She, I just feel like both of these women were like so good at like standing up for like what they wanted in their lives, you know, because I think that they just were like, no, like I'm not just another person who can get put to the wayside. Like I'm an important factor in whatever I'm doing. And I think that that's something that women so frequently don't do is factor themselves in, Mm. you know, it's kind of like. And I feel that sometimes, like, I feel like I'm just kind of like caught up in what else, what, whatever's going on around me. And it's like, you kind of forget to take into account, like, what, what do I think about this? Mm. You know, like, what do I have to say about it? Is it anything useful? No. Okay. <laughs> then I won't say it. Maybe. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I just felt like they both had, I don't know. They had things to say. And I feel like they're both in these very weird situations where oddly, men are taken out of the scenario. Yeah, they were absolutely taken out. And I I feel like partially um, for Juana, it was by choice, but then by necessity. Because even after she chose to go to the nunnery, she was still inviting these male scholars in until she lost patronage. So they were kind of unwillingly taken away from her the same way that like Malcolm Epps was taken away from Betty. Well, you know, what's interesting is it also kind of feels to me like when you frame it like that, like a form of protection too. Mm. Like Juana is living in a world where she's like, I want to have discussions with male scholars, but I literally can't do that because it's fucking dangerous for me. Mm -hmm. And how can I protect myself if I have them come to me in the nunnery? That is the most protected that a woman in this time period can literally be right now. And it's not even foolproof. It was a form of protection for sure. Yeah. And I think, yeah, exactly. And, but I just feel like there is this very interesting scenario of, yet like she took herself away from men 
in a way and Betty had her man taken away from her and like I feel like they both ended up like really blossoming blossoming in both of those situations and just like a big crew of girls (laughs) no they did because I mean like Betty's house was basically a fucking dinner there's so many girls in there like Like, legitimate daughters that's insane but like and I do feel like there is a really big like feeling of sisterhood in like Muslim communities. Oh, like yeah. I'm not in it, but like, I feel like they, I mean, they, they are like separated literally by like, you know, a partition sometimes. Yeah. And so like all the women are together. And right. like, I feel like that is a very powerful thing of like, we're in different households. We're in different situations, but like, I got you, you yeah, know, we're together yeah. in, in this worship and in this society. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I just feel like these are two women who, didn't have men in their life for two very different reasons, but still were able to accomplish so much. Uh, amazing amounts of things. <laughs> yeah. Because like, I just can't believe that. Like they also like, I think that's why I wanted to name the cocktail, like Dr. Shabazz's sangria because she got her doctorate so late in life. Yeah. And that's, the th- it's like odd because it's a combination of so late in life and with six children at home. And, and like going back to like finish what you started. Yeah, exactly. And, but both of these women ended up dying in middle age. Yeah. Which is weird too. They were 46 and 61. Very young. Way Very, too, way, way taken too way too early for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and I also, I think there's a lot to be said that, you know, Juana died during this pandemic, which I know we can all relate to now that we fucking live. I know like our living never would have been able to deal with people keep talking about the pandemic and the past tense. And like, it's people like it's still going on. It feels past right now. My children are not vaccinated. So yeah, stay away from them. Yeah. (laughs) But like she died helping people through a pandemic and Betty would not have died if she hadn't tried to save her grandson. Right. And I think that that is a very important point to make because, like, the ends of their lives were so tragic, so tragic, and so selfless. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. There's just a like, they were so separate in any way. Like when you were telling your story, I was so just wrapped up in it. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to even compare these two women because I'm so, I was so affected by what you were saying about her. And now it's like, I can't stop seeing similarities, which right. is like, I don't know. It's a really cool thing. Cause it they live the point of the show. It- <laughs> <laughs> I always learn something in just the two of us. Um, just the two of us. Like- <laughs> but yeah, but I don't know. I just think like, yeah, the beginning and the ends of their lives were mm. just and the middle, honestly. Like yeah. it's weird how they hit such similar milestones. I don't know. I just like I'm really fascinated by this odd comparison because I didn't think I didn't know you were doing this person. I thought you were doing someone else. Mm. So this is really interesting. Are you ready to toast these women? I'm very ready to toast. Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I want to toast women with raw fury. Mm. I think that Juana thought so much about what she wanted to say and then so little about what she was going to say before she said it. Um, And I just really love 
when your anger is rooted in injustice that is so guttural and i just feel like that's the person she was yeah there we go cheers, cheers. Mm. and you i'm gonna toast it's so funny that you ended my story with like behind every great man as like a great woman <laughs> thing because I'm going to toast the great women who are much more than just behind a great man because, well, to be fair, I said in front oh, of Oh, in front, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I just feel like we literally, I didn't even know who she was before this week. And then to, like, I didn't, I didn't even put her in context with Malcolm X, let alone behind him. Like, right. You know, she was just nowhere in my scope of view. So I just want to toast her because she's so much more and she did so much more than than I think anyone gives her credit for. You yeah. know, so I just want to toast, yeah, women who are just even more than even behind great men. <laughs> Cheers. Oh, all right, Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? I want to influence people to use their PTO. Okay. I just, your company gives you paid time off for a reason and it's yours and stop feeling like they will care more if you stay longer. Those are your days. Take yeah. your days. Go get a pedicure. Casey hasn't taken his paid time no. off since he started working at the, co that's ridiculous. And they don't care. That's they the literally don't care. Nobody yeah. cares. Like, is it, like, I do understand the idea that like, it's stressful because you have to set up to take a day off and you have to like, you know, like as a teacher, I know I have to write sub plans. I have to hope the sub does it right. I have to come back and fix everything they messed up in my classroom. Like, I get it. It's not always easy. Take your fucking paid time off. Yeah. You are not a slave to the system. Yeah. I just there we want go. people to take their days off and relax and yeah. read a book yeah. or do the things when you're, when your to-do list is overwhelming. Instead of taking it out on your family, just take off tomorrow. Yeah. And fucking do it. Yeah. Ugh. Perfect. Take your paid time off. That's my promo for this week. Everybody take a day off. All right. What's yours? <laughs> In that time off, you should watch Modern Family. It's so good. It's so good. I was telling Allie about this on Sunday yeah, at Sunday Night Dinner, and I was like, I just feel obviously outrageously because i'm very late to the game that this show was tailor-made for me <laughs> i it's don't i i just i laugh so fucking hard at it it's really funny and also it just increases like the burning urge in my body again like i don't have a burning urge to have a child but i have a burning urge to adopt one mm -hmm. and i it has increased tenfold since this show <laughs> <laughs> And, like, I just love it so much. I think it's so fucking funny. I am Phil Dunphy, and I just, <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's just a really good show. There are, and it's one of those shows that um, weaves comedy and drama together so nicely where you're crying in one minute. I'm crying at the end of every yeah. episode. Yeah. How is that? How is it? Because Sofia Vergara is She's perfect. so perfect. <laughs> That's why. I just like, I just love it so much. And I've been really enjoying it because on Hulu, they didn't have 
because like the show was still going on, they only right. had the latest season. So now Hulu has every season. Also, Hulu is amazing, and yeah, I would encourage really everyone is. to watch it. It really is good. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I double that. I second that recommend, recommendation. <laughs> it's a good show. So, so yeah, it's very good. So keep an eye on that. Um, yeah. and we love you. Never, and we want you to rate and review us. Find us everywhere. <laughs> Find us everywhere on so many things. You get so much more on our social media than you do in the show. You do. We're about to talk signs, which everybody loves. So <laughs> if you want to join the conversation, join our Patreon. For literally as whatever you want to do. So <laughs> as little as one dollar as much as a thousand dollars a day. I mean, that would be ideal. But, um so Bill Gates, if you're listening, I know you're single now, so if you want to come on over to the Patreon. Yeah, um, also QE2, I know you're single now. <laughs> what if they got together? That's the dream. You heard it here first. Dream cop. Dream Bill cop. Gates left his wife for QE2. <laughs> Elizabilium. <laughs> That's their couple name. And it's also their new podcast. Um <laughs> because all of the royals have podcasts and YouTube channels now for some reason. That's crazy. Okay. All right. We love you. Never forget that well behaved women say a million dollars when you ask them what they want for Mother's Day. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and they rarely make history. <laughs> Goodbye. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye